when I look at a lab sheet and I see all this lab work that perhaps is like way off the bell curve and extreme, but I'm staring at a patient that's happy, healthy, and doing right. really well exactly. on a medication they shouldn't be, I look at them and I look at the data and I say, you know what, I'm going to throw this piece of paper away and I'm going to focus on you as the individual. And if you're happy, healthy, and thriving, perhaps we're breaking all the numbers, but that's what I'm measuring. And that's the art of medicine. And I think that gut experience feel. And we actually, and fundamentally, we teach this in medical school. We always say you treat the patient, not the lab numbers, not the x-ray. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. She started off wanting to be a teacher, but then decided science is the answer to everything and became a doctor. Today, Dr. Gita Nayar, Executive Medical Director at Salesforce, is actually both and loving it. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So, why <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> I have a question. Yes, Lisa. Go is for there it. a teacher in your life or in your past life, hopefully, who left a real impression on you? One who you credit with changing your life in some material way. Sure. Um, well, first of all, we're always learning and growing. So I hope oh, people please. are teaching me every day. Um, uh, but, you know, the person, I mean, there are a lot, of, I've really been so blessed with some amazing teachers. The person who really stands out for me was my um, uh, 11th grade English teacher, uh, Tony Giamatti. Uh, most people know her husband, Bart Giamatti, who is president of Yale and then, you know, Major League Baseball Commissioner. But his wife, um, uh, Tony Giamatti, oh, and the father of, uh, mother of Paul Giamatti, um, oh, wow. was just an extra, actually, an and their other kids are, are all like in theater as well. Um, just both an extraordinary person and uh, a, a tremendous writing teacher who, um, you know, I know I, who really just sort of like really awakened the interest and in the, um, uh, in me and about writing and literature and um, just really brought it so much alive to me and gave me so much more confidence in that whole area than I think I would have ever had without her. So I, I really think probably more than anybody else, uh, ever she's uh, impacted my life. What about you, Lisa? Yeah, you know, probably it's hard. It's hard to say, but I remember, you know, one in particular, my eighth grade or uh, my high school English teacher, uh, <laughs> Richard Ferry, was you know taught journalism also, and so I really think it inspired my interest in doing something journalistic. You know, and so I, it stuck. Yeah, yeah, you definitely. <laughs> yeah, you still have that. <laughs> yeah, I do. Then you major in you major in journalism. Um, uh, at Berkeley, right? I did, in in part. Um, in any event, yes, it was very, uh, very much a plan from mine at the beginning. But life changes. Funny how those things go. And speaking of that, Dr. Gita Nayar grew up in a medical family. Her parents were with the MDs, and her two brothers are both in the healthcare field. One's in medical school as to start a second career. She started her own medical training at the age of 17 and never looked back, though she spends most of her time in the world of healthcare IT now. Gita, we are so happy to have you on the show today. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. Um, I know your original plan was to be a teacher because you're a people person, you said, and then you fell in love with science. Do you recall the catalyst that sent you towards medical school? 
Oh, goodness. I, you know, I've always been a science nerd. So I would say to empower other science nerds to go on and, and, and do well in, in, um, in life is really what gets me up in the morning. I think healthcare is everywhere. Science is everywhere. We're seeing that with the pandemic. There, there couldn't be more. Um, I, I know, I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm like the nerd of all nerds. So, so for me, it just, I think being a physician is being a teacher if you're doing it right. And that's really where the connection happened for me. So you said the other day to me that science is the answer to everything, even emotion. What did you mean by that? Oh, come on. It's all related, right? It's all the psychosocial aspects of the mind-body connection. That, that should be so obvious that it's funny to me that we're talking about mental health as the number one issue during the pandemic. Mental health is the number one issue every day in the world, right? Yeah. And there's biology involved. There's genetics involved. There's environmental factors involved. Um, there's behavioral issues involved. So again, science truly, I believe it is the answer to everything, despite what some of the politicians might say right now. Ah, well, speaking of that, um, it seems to be a very difficult time for many Americans to be swayed by science or to believe science, if you will. And you're living in a state, Florida, where that is, I think, more common than uh, in some others. Um, what, what do you think that's about? You know, to be really honest with you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm amazed by how many folks, and this is, again, a great teaching moment, if you ask me, right? The fact that we don't understand that the way to prevent a virus is by washing our hands, covering our mouth, and staying away from folks, especially if we're not feeling well. Those are all preventative measures for the flu, just as much as they are for COVID-19, just as much as they are for any upper respiratory viral infection. So this has actually been humbling, I think, for me as a physician to realize that every time I told my patients this during flu season, they were not listening. They didn't think I was serious. And all of a sudden, it just, it's, it's turned into this amazing equation and algorithm. But we've been telling our five-year-olds to wash their hands, cover their mouth when they sneeze and cough, and we're really saying nothing different. It's just the stakes are obviously much higher. Um, and this has become a much more global problem all at the same time. So I am just as humbled by the lack of knowledge and, and how this got so off track. So you actually still are a teacher, not just a doctor, on, and not just a health IT expert on faculty of University of Miami teaching rheumatology. Does the teaching appeal still hold for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I would say it's bi-directional, right? I learned just as much from my students as I do I think teaching them, a lot of technology I'm learning from them, I'll tell you, there's all kinds of stuff they have in medical school now that I did not have, um, a lot better ways to learn and teach as well. Um, but, you know, every time I think you see that light go off, there's just, there's just a satisfaction. There's just a, a beautiful satisfaction that you've showed someone, you know, how to fish for themselves in the world and then to pay it forward with their own patient population. So, so it's beautiful. Um, I want you to go back to when you were talking about, uh, about, about science as being, being the answer. And how do you balance the, um, you know, people mean different things by science. I mean, do you, is, do you mean an analytical approach? Do you, do you mean everything in the world? Do you mean, you know, because there's also a reductionist sense. And, uh, you know, what's funny, because from my training, which was so involved in, in biology and medicine and, you know, in physics, you know, and, and all of that stuff. I actually got the sense that medicine was more like science style than actual science. I think there's the idea, there's a lot of what people do, which they learn from, you know, uh, most of it isn't as evidence-based as you'd think. And we don't have good data for so much of what we do. And so much of what people think is intuitively obvious uh, turns out not to be true. So the more I've done science in my, you know, with the PhD and all of that stuff I've done, it's made me more 
cautious about embracing, not about embracing science versus the alternative, but about recognizing the limitations of what science can know and what science can predict. So it's interesting to me that your perspective going through this and feeling amazingly empowered by everything you've seen science do. So that's, I think, you know, that's a great question. So I, I guess I'll back into that with everything that's going on, right? So from the data we do have, and I'm going to use COVID for obvious reasons, from the data that we do have, what we know right now comes back to the basics of science as far as prevention goes, right? That's not to say that there's a bunch of stuff we don't know. That's clearly the case and, and why this is also humbling for so many of us, Dr. Fauci included, right? So I just mean that numbers, analytics, it's part of it. And then to your point, you know, there is this true science bench research PhD, which is why I did not do a PhD. This is why I did an MD, right? Because then there's this thing, the art of medicine, which is when I look at a lab sheet and I see all this lab work that perhaps is like way off the bell curve and extreme, but I'm staring at a patient that's happy, healthy, and doing really well on a medication they shouldn't be. I look at them and I look at the data and I say, you know what, I'm going to throw this piece of paper away. And I'm going to focus on you as the individual. And if you're happy, healthy, and thriving, perhaps we're breaking all the numbers, but that's what I'm measuring. And that's the art of medicine. And I think that gut experience feel. And we actually, and fundamentally, we teach this in medical school. We always say you treat the patient, not the lab numbers, not the x-ray. The Osler quote or something like that, how the good doctor treats the disease, the great doctor treats the patient or something like that, right? Exactly. But, you know, but we acknowledge that. I guess what I mean to say by that is we even teach that. Right. We even teach that in the sense of we realize there is a limit. Right. Um, but for what we do know, we want to do, you know, our best in evidence evidence based practice. But to, to, to say that we've got it all figured out. Oh, wow. I that. I, I definitely, you know, I, again, and I'm being very ask, humbled in this time. And then let me ask you one other thing about, you were talking about the science and COVID and the politics of it all. And I guess I've been so struck by how I, the, you know, I think that science is always closely in, like, you can't completely disentangle the politics from it. And I think a lot of the people, really the public health scientists may not have done themselves a service when all of their, the, you know, and they've, they've even acknowledged this, like in some New York Times articles where, you know, their prohibitions don't go out, with, don't go out anywhere, don't go in groups, don't do anything. Then in the context of the protest, they were like, well, go ahead, go ahead. It's, it's, it's worth it in this case. We're deciding that. And I think there was a lot of, departure from the exact same science when they so strongly agreed with the message of what was going on. So I think the idea of science as just this objective um, entity has been really challenged by some of the, you know, observed behaviors we've seen um, during the pandemic. David, those are great points. And I think that's the difference between theory and reality, right? So theoretically, stay in a bubble and stay in a bubble until the pandemic's over, right? Realistically, we all have to think about going back to school, going back to work. And so, you know, the way I, the conversations I'm having with patients is around measured risk, right? When they're saying, I have to go to the grocery store, I need to see grandma or I need to, you know, it's my risk is not the same as your risk is not the same as my neighbor's risk, right? Are, are we going to have a big pool party? That's not the risk I'm going to take, right? But so I, I think we're all individually and, and as families having to make those decisions. But the idea is to do it informed. And then ultimately, it's your decision. And hopefully you're also being mindful of the other people you can impact around you. But you're right. I, I, you're spot on. So I'm curious, you know, that you started out in med school at 17 or in this college, a six-year college program, right? That, you know, led you to be a doctor pretty young. I mean, younger than most. Wow. And um, I'm wondering how that was. I mean, in light of all this discussion of trust of science and trust of physicians and the like, 
did people trust you when you're coming out of school in your early 20s, you know, wearing a white coat? Great question. So first of all, yeah, I Great went to medical question. school before I could drink. So that was always interesting, live arounds on Thursday, happy hour time. <laughs> no, we couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't legally partake in that. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't really think about it, Lisa. I, for me, it's, it still continues. I'd like to still think I'm a young doc, right, Lisa? But I, you know, more often than not, I don't know that it was about age. I think it was more about gender. I was always called a nurse. Um, always told, you know, when can I see the doctor now? I still remember this gentleman at the VA that I saw. I, I must have seen him every day for six months. And every morning rounds at the end, he'd say, so when am I going to see the doctor? And I would just uh. nod and say, I am the doctor <laughs> or the pharma rep. So, you know, I, um, I, I think I was really nerdy, very focused and just did, did my role. But, but I think that was part of it. And I, I don't think it was necessarily just me. I'm sure there were many other folks in the same bucket, whether it was age, gender, whatever it might be. When did that start to change if it did? Do you think it was um, uh, any change in, um, in, the, in the external world and people sort of, because more than half of physicians now, um, uh, not least including um, uh, my mom and my wife are, are physicians. So it doesn't, but it more generally, it's not this, shocking thing the way it was a generation before perhaps that there's a, a, a woman and a doctor you know now it's like well yeah um is it a generational thing do you think or was there any way you interacted not that it was on you but you know that as men and women get older and grow into different roles do you think that there was a different way of engaging with patients in a sense to preempt that you know, that's a great question. I'm not sure I know the answer. I, I would say that it had more to do with my patient population and generation mm. than my peers. So again, I mentioned the VA because again, women were not even in the military at that time, right? This gentleman was probably in his 90s. I was in my 20s. So it was sort of shocking from his lens, right? Maybe not for my colleagues. Um, on the colleague sense, I, I do, you know, one thing I would say is that working in the hospital at that time, and I would still say to date, is that there is a definite mm dynamic in the in the care team when you have a male physician versus a female physician meaning the nursing staff the nursing staff will typically cater more to a male doctor than a female doctor typically call a female doctor by her first name call the male doctor by doctor so and so so you know there are just these dynamics that i i still think continue to to play out um and you know hopefully we're all measured on on our that's within the same specialty versus the fact that um you know, that there may be more male doctors in surgery still and more women doctors in other fields. It's, it's not, you know, when I'm, I kind of always view surgery as especially hierarchical. Um, so I could imagine that they might call everybody, you know, more likely to, pe to, to sort of be more, oh, doctor so-and-so, whereas I, I don't know. I don't think I had a nurse call me doctor ever. So it was uh, uh, a yeah, male or female nurse call me doctor. So I don't know. Um, sure. But but um, maybe maybe MGH is an informal place that I wasn't aware of. But uh. I think you're right that there are nuances within each specialty. Surgery definitely being a lot more hierarchical, a lot more male dominated. I think that continues. Um, you know, pediatrics now a lot more female. Primary care a lot more female. Uh, OB/GYN as well. So I think to your point, things change with time. But I, I don't know that the whole wave has has come over. You know, interestingly, the data show it also tracks with the politics. I just wrote about this about work from Adam uh, Bonick and colleagues at Stanford, where um, uh, 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 women doctors are um, 
and, and younger doctors and women doctors are uh, significantly more progressive, um, not each person, but on balance. And so you have things where infectious disease and pedi pediatrics are especially progressive and things like spine surgery, for example, is the most um, conservative just uh, on the basis of the metric that these political scientists use. So it's kind of, I mean, there really are these differences across gender and specialty and it's fascinating to watch uh, as they play out. It is, and even in health tech, right, Lisa? I mean, we're one of the few women in at this level. I mean, to be at this level, I would say that it's technology has its own problems, right? Healthcare, C-suite, boards. I mean, you all know that the the data, right? That continues to be a gap when we know that the population that really takes care of the family are all women. Really I had an experience just today on this on this topic, but I will leave that for another time. <laughs> um, so, Kita, you told me that. Um, your life was sort of forever changed by a chronic kidney uh, disease patient that you had sent you off in a different direction. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I definitely did not go to medical school thinking I was going to be doing a podcast with you guys, right? How did I get <laughs> here? This, this was not the plan, although I appreciate the journey very much. Um, and working for the phone company as the chief medical officer of the phone company, my parents were very confused by my, my life decisions. So, you know, really it started with this one patient that was representative of so many patients that I've seen, which was um, chronic kidney patient on dialysis, Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule, would pretty regularly miss his dialysis appointments, which bought him an ER visit. Um, I had seen him several years throughout my training, and I remember sort of getting to the top of my career and being the top sort of doc about to graduate, um, saying, you know what, I'm going to figure out why this guy keeps coming back, because this is ridiculous. This is a really simple equation. He just needs to get to dialysis, and he doesn't need to be here. Um, so when I actually sat down and talked with him in the emergency room about why he can't get to hemodialysis, he said, well, my son can't take me. I can't get a ride to dialysis, and I'm living with my son and his wife, and they have kids, and I don't want to be a burden, so I come here because you guys will just take care of it, right? So I wanted to admit this patient basically for a social disposition and to get him transportation. We think about social determinants of health and essentially went up against an administrator who basically said, no, this does not meet criteria for admission. And I basically said, you know, this is the business of medicine. And if we did this, this would improve his outcome. This would decrease the burden on the system, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, long story short, this gentleman ended up missing two dialysis, ended up actually passing away, having an arrhythmia, all very preventable, you know, all preventative interventions. But because, again, our healthcare system is so broken and dysfunctional, and we're seeing that again play out in the pandemic, that administrator wasn't able to connect the front lines with the balance sheet. And so this is why I ended up going to business school and going into health tech, because I realized that to truly make an impact in healthcare. You have to touch and feel patients, but you do have to also understand business and operations and finance. And if you can connect those three, well, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to know when that patient, John Doe, comes to the ER and his data analytics shows us this is what his outcome will look like if this social determinant of health is not catered to and what is the right place and time for that intervention. And so that's really how my career and what gets me going as a doctor today in health tech but I definitely remain in the industry because I am a passionate physician who wants to empower individuals to be healthy and happy and, and have good, good lives where they make good decisions. So you first collided on the uh, health IT front here when you were in business school, right? When you were at George Washington University and they were rolling out their first EHR. How are we doing on that promise of the things you were looking to do with your chronic kidney patient? Well, you know, I'd say that we've come a long way, but we've definitely created 
new problems, right? We created problems we perhaps didn't, didn't imagine, right? So we solved some problems, we created new ones, not lost upon us as physician burnout, right? At a time when we need our physicians and caregivers more than ever. So again, that's, that's the opportunity we have in this time is just sort of sit back, reflect, and think about how the healthcare system should be. Um, how do we get patients the right care at the right time and place, which we know affects outcomes and cost. We're doing this all from our respective homes, right? Seeing patients now in their homes goes a long way. You know, I, I have patients right now that I just have, we're trying all these things at the hospital system, Bluetooth, uh, weight scale, Bluetooth, blood pressure cuff, Bluetooth, pulse ox. What I say to my patients, can you weigh yourself? Do you have a way of weighing yourself in your house and getting me that information? Whether you, you're, you know, you're, you're stacking up some books and weighing what they would, I just need to know your data and where it's trending, right? Technology's great but I'm really not in this for the technology. I just need to know the delta between your weight from before dinner and after dinner to know how your CHF is doing and whether we need an intervention and whether I can take care of you at home or you need to meet me in the emergency room. I love how your clinical experience really seems to ground you and sort of seems to really help keep you focused. So you sort of have all the background and perspective that enables you to leverage tech, but also to do it prudently so that you're not doing it for the, just the sake of tech and you're still being driven by patient need. I think that's beautiful. Thank you, David. No, and you know, it's tough because I sit in rooms where they're like, oh, let's throw AI at this and let's throw this bell and this whistle. Totally. And I'm like, you know what? All we're looking for is the weight. Like we don't actually have to make this a million dollars or have five clicks to get to it. Even if, you, even if you manually enter that weight and on the back end, we can you know, automate that. I'm good. From a doctor perspective, from the clinical perspective, which is the bottom line, what is the clinical problem we're solving? And how does technology, what is the clinical problem defined? And then what is the technology that is going to be the solution? And sometimes we forget the problem and we just start solutioning, right? And that's where I think the industry's gone with the EHR, right? Yeah. And I've just come from an EHR company, so I can say that it's needed. We need a clinical database. We've got to do billing. We've got to do documenting, all of that. But Consumer engagement, not happening in the EHR. Physician engagement, not happening in the EHR, right? It's not. I, I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate. I mean, I'm, yeah. Um, you started, so your first health IT official job was at AT&T. You were the first chief medical officer there, one of the first chief medical officers at a tech company. What year was that? That was circa 2008, I think. And now you're just starting after a couple of other roles you had in between at the equivalent type of a job, a very senior job, the chief medical person at Salesforce, another tech company, not a traditional healthcare company, although they've done a lot also in healthcare. What's different between then and now? How is great, this job great question. You know, well, exciting when the job at AT&T I know for you was not what you'd hoped it turned out to be. Sure. So, you know, what I would say is that my, you know, whatever role I've been in, I would say that it's well spent time, energy, perspective on the industry. AT&T was a fantastic uh, role, fantastic company. But, you know, non-healthcare companies who get into healthcare, they need to be ready for the grit of it. Right. And so what that means is we, we are a highly regulated industry, highly regulated. And when you think about a sales force in AT&T, you've got to be re ready to do M&As. You've got to be ready to have a huge clinical team to really have a group that knows the industry, not just to select individuals and not just a toe dip in the investment. And I think that was a missed opportunity by AT&T, but also to be frank, a big part of why I came to Salesforce, another non-healthcare company getting into healthcare is because of the time we're in. We're in a time now 
where digital engagement is truly, I think, the future of, of medicine. So a big part of why I came is I said, you know what, this is the future, right? It's not with the EHR. It's, it's everything in digital engagement, virtual, um, virtual check-in, and telemedicine. I mean, Salesforce, in my mind, can bring that together. I think AT&T could have also, but it was a different time of the industry. Mm-hmm. And it was a different understanding of the market. They ultimately so, pulled out. It was just too much regulation. So the cynical view of some of these tech companies uh, getting into tech is that they basically want to sell uh, healthcare ser- systems on the cloud and to sort of have everyone you know, do the digital transformation and to u- ultimately make the money on the cloud. That's what I've seen happen a lot. I think that's what Microsoft is doing. I think that's what AWS is doing. End of the day, it's sort of basically selling cloud and getting into this is just another vertical. They're trying to invest a little bit in it, but that's kind of ultimately what they're trying to do. Um, But not everybody. I mean, it's obviously not what Apple is doing or Facebook. Um, Where in that ecosystem is Salesforce? So I would say that Salesforce is firmly committed in the healthcare space, starting from the top. Mark Benioff is our CEO. He is very much out there talking about wearing a mask, donating PPE, um, investing in ensuring that hospital and health systems are getting not just through this, but to what we're calling the new exceptional, not just the new normal. Because we're all depending on it, right? This isn't just about our company. This is really a very humbling experience for all of us globally. And even if you are a gazillionaire. I, I think that this is um, this is a time where leadership shines, right? And I think that that's where we're at, whether we look at Mark Benioff, Bill Gates, there are a lot of big business leaders that have an opportunity to make an impact. And I think that we're blessed to be one of those companies. Well, Benioff has certainly been investing personally in healthcare quite a lot in healthcare IT over the last, you know, eight or 10 years, I know. And so at least he's demonstrated his long-term interest. I think it's exciting. What is the big can you talk about a project you're working on that's particularly exciting or is it not possible to do that? Sure. You know, I'm, I'm so new, Lisa, so I'm, I'm, I can talk about it at a high level, but, you know, again, this is, this is really what I'm doing, right? It's working with the product team, the solution team, focusing on what we're calling the, the new exceptional digital experience. And it's everything that you think about before you go to the doctor's office, right? Patient education, digital engagement, proactive preventative care, making sure, David, you know, we know when it's time to get your colonoscopy and we know who's in your zip code. And we also know that this is how much it's going to cost you. And we, cause we, you know, we're also working with the payers, life sciences, as well as health systems. So we have the opportunity to kind of bring it all together. And then again, care delivery, right? Hooking up with not just EHRs, but remote patient monitoring devices, um, different applications, right? Everyone's using an app now for everything, whether they're running, they're swimming, they're jumping, they're, you know, and how does that affect the things that we talked about? Is that true for older people? Um, And I mean, I'm just sort of wondering because like I can, I know you're not, uh, in, in, in San Francisco right now. But like in San Francisco, it's like, well, sure, everyone uses a delivery service and, you know, you know, is on a, you know, board to work and all that stuff and blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, I'm not sure how representative what one sees in San Francisco would be of the world. And, you know, they have like the young hipsters, if that, how general, how much that generalizes to the people with the greatest need in the healthcare system. So it would be, and I know actually Benioff is super attuned to, super attuned to that and to particularly to the needs of the least well served. So he's, he's super aware of that, but I didn't know how that relates to sort of an app based approach for, um, uh, sort of accessing healthcare information. Sure. So again, given what's going on, you'd be surprised what's changed and accelerated quickly, right? We have the data to, to the extent we have the data in real time with what's going on. I will tell you as a rheumatologist who specializes in, in dealing with older folks that 
we underestimate the elderly every day in America, every day. The elderly population is one of the most connected because they want to talk to their grandkids, frankly. They're on Facebook for sure. But like, are they downloading like the latest um, Zippy app? So again, and even if they're, first of all, if they have chronic diseases and we've made it easy for them, they are in the hospital systems that provide that. And if they're not, their caregiver is, right? Their son or daughter representative of the, you know, the folks of us on the call, we're doing it for them, right? And not necessarily for them with their knowledge, but it's because we're coordinating their care. We're helping figure out what's their deductible. So if it's a tool that helps us as the caregiver, we're using it whether mom or dad knows it and we're getting them food delivered, whether they know we did it via an app or we did it ourselves, right? So I think that's the layer of that sandwich generation. And same with kids, right? Back to school, who's coordinating those visits to the pediatrician, figuring out flu shots, it's mom. And if you have the tools to do it, mom's gonna use them, whether the patient knows it or not, mom in the back end is using those things. Well, I know yet your parents. I would say parents are in fact, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think in some families like yours, that's probably right. In many families, unfortunately, it's not uh, more than the moms. Um, in your parents, I know are in their 70s, both physicians, both practicing still, and they must be then doing virtual visits like you are. Um, how's that going? I mean, as, as on the physician front, the older physician front, is that is that smooth sailing for them? So, you know, that's a great question. And I think it, it, it actually hits what David said. So asking my parents about virtual visits five years ago, non-starter. My dad is 79, ICU physician, trained in India, England, the United States. My mom, uh, internist, trained in India, UK, United States. They are doing virtual visits full time now. And I'll tell you, my mom loves it more than my dad. My dad is an intensivist. He wants to do procedures. He wants to be in the ICU. He wants to have his hands. That's, that's what you're trained to do, right? Just like a surgeon. So it's been interesting to see that. But I, and I'll tell you, even with the EHR, I remember telling them because they'd call me. They're like, what do we do about this EHR thing? This is, your, this is your thing. Why don't you tell us what to do? And I actually told them, you guys should retire. Like, it's enough. Just don't even bother. <laughs> and, they, and they looked at me and they were like, listen, kiddo, we've immigrated from two different countries. We've done like three different specialties. It's awesome. We'll figure this out. Like we got this. And now to see them doing telemedicine, it blows my mind. So David. That's awesome. Well, my parents are still in active practice uh, and doing research and sending in um, papers. So I, I, I completely appreciate the potential. Um, but it's just like, I mean, there are a lot, there's also a lot of worthless apps. So I, you know, to some sense, it might even be good discretion. You know, it's a combination of everything, the, the need, the necessity, the need of necessities, the best, what is it? You know what I'm saying. Mother necessities, of invention, I think mother of invention. <laughs> yeah, that's what's going on. That's exactly what's going on. And you have this, this tremendous will from the end user that's like, I need to do X and this is how I'm going to be able to do it. It's the only way to do it right now. Right. Wow. So, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think on that note, maybe we'll bring it to a close because I think that's awesome to talk about, you know, how everybody is, is dealing with this reckoning and, and being forced to engage with technology or being drawn to get, engage with technology in ways they hadn't ever done before. And um, you're certainly somebody who's been at the forefront of that, uh, leading that, that process for a long, long time. So Good on you, man. This is great. I'm so delighted. It looks like you wanted to say one thing, another thing. Yeah, um, I, I was, I was going to say, Lisa, that you know, it's still not about the technology for me, though. So to me, the story yeah. is that we were able to connect, right? Like we're able to connect on this call. My parents are able to continue to practice medicine, which is their passion. Mm-hmm. It's not about the technology. It's just there's no other way for them to do it safely right now. Right. Right. They're in their 70s, late 70s. So to me, it's that passion and that, well, just like we talked about the grandparents, they want to talk to their grandkids. 
you will walk through fire for your grandkids. You know what I mean? So it's, it's that, so this comes back to people, passion and purpose. And, and David, I love to hear about your parents as well, because, you know, when I just, my mom's birthday was this week and I was talking to my dad and he did say to me, he was like, you know, if this is what retirement looks like, it's for the birds. I need to get back into the hospital. Like I cannot keep this up. He's like, I need to get back with my hands, you know? So that's just people. I mean, that's, that's people and what, what moves them. And so I think that's what this is about. I don't think it's about Love the it. technology. Excellent. Wow. Thanks, Gita, so much for being on the show. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They're so lucky to have you, it seems. I mean, what, what, a, what how wonderful to have your perspective, the clinical, the humanistic, the scientific, uh, driving this forward, um, you know, for a company that's, you know, clearly already a big part of our skyline here when we can see it through the smoke. Um, and, um, uh, uh, you know, to be able to really have them make such a, a step towards a healthcare would be fantastic. Thank you both for having me on. And please stay safe. Please stay safe out there. Today's guest, Gita Nayar, was speaking to us live from Florida, center of the hot zone. Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess the idea of uh, science and its uh, limitations uh, is certainly on, uh, on her mind there, right? I would imagine so. Um, yeah. Such an I, interesting career, right? I mean, yeah. um, I mean, and it's, I love that she's so grounded in medicine. I mean, you know, still takes care of patients. And I think that just gives, you know, I mean, even though I haven't taken care of patients directly for a little while, that experience makes me look at technology so differently and i think the fact that she's still doing it every day it's just you really see the technology as a tool not an end in itself but you start to think really creatively as she clearly is about how best it can be applied it's so fantastic to watch her right at that interface i agree and i think incredible. it's genuine and and not just sort of the stuff you say which is the case with so many people you know it's just so genuine sure wow what a remarkable person so on that note you can follow david's column astounding health tech at the timmerman report and please remember and, to give us a review on itunes if you like the show and you can follow the inimitable lisa sunin and her writing at venturevalkyrie.com we're grateful to manat health for sponsoring today's episode of tectonics manat health integrates strategic business consulting public policy acumen legal excellence and deep analytic capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across america's healthcare system Together with its parent company, Manat, Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Take care. Be well. Wear a mask. <laughs>